Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. Minnesota's own Lorna Landvik is a comedian, actress, playwright, and prolific novelist. Her 1995 fiction debut, Patty Jane's House of Curl, a zany but heartwarming story about two Minnesota sisters who open a beauty parlor, complete with live heart music and Norwegian baked goods, introduced readers to Landvik's unique brand of humor. She has since published nearly a dozen other books, including bestsellers, Welcome to the Great Mysterious in 2002, Angry Housewives Eating Bonbons in 2004, Oh My Stars in 2008, and Best to Laugh in 2014. In addition to her writing, Landvik is a regular in the local improv comedy scene and has written and starred in several scripted plays. Her latest novel, Once in a Blue Moon Lodge, is a long-awaited sequel to Patty Jane's House of Curl. It hit shelves in April. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Where's the baby? Where is he? Diaper change. Oh, I, I want him back. Um, thank you all so much for coming. It was kind of slow on 494 from Minneapolis. Hey, do you mind if I take your picture so I can look at it when, you know, I go to some bookstore and there are two people? Um, so hold on, okay. Just look really animated, okay? Thank you. Oh, is the baby back? Yeah. yeah. Is Sorry. the baby in there? Oh, oh. How old is the baby? 10 weeks. Oh. Is it a boy or a girl? He is a boy. He is a boy. It is a boy. He's very, very cute. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you all for coming. I'm just thrilled that you all came out. Um, I always, whenever I'm in a library, I like to, hi, Kathy. Um, <laughs> You're a famous librarian. Um, I always, yay, there we go. She knew me when I was young. Um, I always like to tell, talk about recognition and libraries um, when I'm in a library. Um, I, a long time ago, was sitting at the Nokomis Library, my local library in Minneapolis, sitting by the fireplace um, that's never lit because of budget concerns. And <laughs> I think I was working on Angry Housewives Eating Bonbons, and I was writing by hand. And I was writing this scene, and I was excited. And I heard a woman up at Miss Lucy, our librarian's desk, and she says, yeah, say, do you have that tall pine polka by that Laura Lardbark? And you know, I, I perked up a little, and Miss Lucy said, well, I'll check and see if we have the book, but if you'd like to speak to the author, she's right over there. <laughs> I love how you duck. Like, <laughs> like you think you're going to bump into something. Um, so the woman came over to me and uh, proceeded to get into a conversation. And I always like to talk to people, and all the better if she's read my book or wants to, but this woman was a talker. Talk, 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 talk. I knew her husband had just had bunion surgery. Talk, talk. I knew what was in her crock pot that night. Talk, talk. And I really wanted to get back to, get back to that scene. Um, so what seemed like hours passed, and finally she realized she had to get home to that 
debunioned husband in that crock pot. And before she goes, she gets a, a real evil little glimmer in her eye. And she says, you know, we've met before. And I said, really, all this time chatting, where was that? And she said, well, I was the nurse at your colonoscopy. <laughs> she hadn't recognized my face, I guess. <laughs> but I, I leave that all behind me. Uh, I could go on and on with that. Um, I am so excited. Um, you know, I never write a book thinking that I'm going to write a sequel. I'm just not that business savvy. Um, you know, to be a Twilight writer or a Harry Potter writer. When I finish a book, I think, thank you for spending time in my head, but now I'm on to the next. Um, and that's not to say that characters from all of my books appear occasionally in my head, and I might wonder what they're doing. Um, but the characters in Patty Jane's House of Curl, throughout the years, they would kind of yammer at me to continue telling their story. Um, so I tried not to listen, um, but they were really pushy in their, in their yammering. So I finally decided I'm going to go back and revisit and see what all the women and a few men are doing um, in that crazy world. So that's where this book came, out, uh, came up. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit to you um, just because it's a reading slash signing. Um, and well, we'll just talk later. Um, so this is chapter two. Detengo, ah, detengo. It is all about desire. It is all about passion. It is all about control, said the man whose oily black hair was serrated with comb marks. But who's control, asked his partner, whose sharp, angular eyebrows gave her an unwavering look of disdain. Is it the man or the woman who is in control? I would have to say, whispered Patty Jane, imitating the dancer's accent, that in their case, it is definitely the woman. <laughs> At the couple's nod, Inky Kolstad punched the play button, and the dancers began to follow the tape's slow and slinky music. In the calendar of events, it had been listed as a night of tango, and all comers were urged to help us welcome Franco and Vilma Sergovia, international tango stars, as they finished their world tour by heating up the floor at Patty Jane's House of Curl, etc. It didn't matter to anyone in the audience that the Sergovia's world tour had only consisted of stops in Fargo, Billings, Boise, and Bozeman. <laughs> What counted was that the 38 women and 11 men in attendance were being transported to a world of steamy Argentinian sex and intrigue. Near the end of their performance, when the couple recruited volunteers, cheers rose as Thor took the hand Vilma extended to him. Oh boy, thought Nora watching her father. Oh, the maida, thought Ione watching her son. Mother of God, thought Patty Jane, watching her husband in name only. Franco and Vilma Sergovia knew this was a crowd favorite, plucking from the audience willing dance partners, and they had formulated a winning strategy. Franco, after appearing to carefully deliberate, would choose a woman who most likely spent her high school dances wilting against the wall, while Vilma would zero in on the most attractive man in the audience. Sitting together was a contingent of women who had been clients of Patty Jane's House of Curls since its inception. And while they still came to get their now grayer and thinner hair styled at the etc., they considered the true salon to be the one that extended pampering to their minds and souls. For years, women having their hair cut or curled in the day might return in the evening and give their attention to hobbyists, enthusiasts, and the occasional expert who offered insights into Puccini's operas or Icelandic folk art or the easiest way to butterfly a butt roast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Inky, a dedicated fan of Hollywood, had been one of the first to take the leap from customer to instructor and had held lectures on subjects ranging from Ronald Reagan's oeuvre to female second bananas in comedy from Patsy Kelly to Vivian Vance. 
Growing up, Nora had been privy to many of Inky's lectures, and she returned home after her stay in Los Angeles to the woman's wrath. Nora, you were in Hollywood. You were living everyone's dream. Inky, I was drawing up contracts about ancillary rights and production credits. It wasn't like I was a movie star. But you could have been, said Inky, who told anyone willing to listen that Nora Rolvog was in a league with her favorite leading ladies, Rita Hayworth and Debbie Reynolds. The Hollywood expert sat next to Dixie Anderson, who that morning had dyed Inky's wispy hair a Rhonda Fleming red, as per her client's instruction. Dixie had been one of the first to stand behind a beautician's chair with Patty Jane, and she still styled hair, albeit on a shortened schedule due to arthritis that had squatted uninvited in her knees and fingers. Next to her was Crabby Boltram, a woman still cranky enough to be deserving of her nickname. A man can say anything and he's respected for his honesty, she had said long ago. If I were a man, you can bet they never would have called me crabby. <laughs> no, Patty Jane demurred. I'm pretty sure they would have. <laughs> Paige Larkin sat next to her friend Marvel Stang. Marvel wondered what Paige, whose children were as slim and blonde and elegant as their mother, thought about her own daughter, Elise, who Marvel had dragged along to the dance exhibition with the unspoken admonition that it sure beats sitting around eating me out of house and home. Elise and her two children had moved back home after a divorce, and even though Marvel was enamored of her grandkids, she couldn't wait for the day when cartoons didn't blast the morning quiet to smithereens, couldn't wait not to break up fights based on whether Jacob got a smear more peanut butter on his toast than Caitlin, or whether Caitlin had indeed flushed one of Jacob's Legos down the toilet, couldn't wait for what she and Earl had rightfully thought they had earned, a little peace and quiet. Still, it hurt her deeply to hear Elise crying behind the closed door of her old bedroom, still decorated with her high school gymnastics trophies, her cheerleading pom-poms and Sean Cassidy posters. To see her attack the contents of the refrigerator and pantry as if she were not only famished but angry. To overhear anguished phone calls to her best friend in which she bemoaned, 31 years old and my life is over. Now, when the tango dancer with the five darkening into six o'clock shadow held out his hand, Elise wanted to shut her eyes and will him away, but her mother was poking her so hard that she was willing to risk public humiliation just to escape that spleen-bruising elbow. <laughs> Tugging at the ribbed hem of her sweatshirt, Elise blushed furiously as Franco led her to the front of the room. She still hadn't lost her baby weight, never mind that her baby had just started kindergarten. <laughs> you look wonderful, by the way. And in fact, had compounded interest on it. On the small platform that served as a stage, the professional couple demonstrated a few steps before holding their arms out to the amateurs. Elise flushed again, and Thor, watching Franco, adjusted his posture, cocking his elbow higher. You know, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just going to, you know, want to make you think, oh, what happened? Oh, I better buy that book and find out. Um, so a lot of people ask me, um, why? Why did I want to return to Patty Jane's House of Curl? And I, as I told you, the characters kept yammering at me. And I thought it would be a real challenge to write not only a sequel, but a standalone book for people who hadn't read Patty Jane. Could I write enough backstory so those who hadn't read it? And if you haven't, why not? Um, <laughs> so that was the challenge. Um, it took me probably about a year to a year and a half to write it. And that, you know, I keep a very nice schedule. You know, I figure if I'm my own boss, I'm going to be a really good boss. And, <laughs> you know, I allow myself afternoons for matinee movies and, you know, lunches with friends. But I do try to crack the whip so that I, I write every day. Um, I do a show at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. Uh, has anyone ever come to it? Thank you. Two people out of. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm not fishing, oh, really. Um, but I have to tell you, and this won't be uncovering any secrets, because really, the first 
um, lines of the prologue are, um, on the day my grandmother got arrested, I found out I was pregnant with triplets. Uh, yikes. And where the triplets came to me is um, at one of my shows, uh, a convention of mothers of multiples had come. And so there were mothers of twins, mothers of triplets, mothers of quadruplets, and they were the ones that were really tossing it back. Um, but afterwards, they stayed, and I chatted with them, and I just thought that would be so fun to, to write about somebody having triplets. Um, but just singles are so fun, too. <laughs> hey, what's his name? Bates. Mace? Bates. Bates. Oh, Bates, okay. Well, I, I wish you would pronounce when I talk to you. No, Bates. He is a pretty baby. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so that's where that came from. The, and, and you know, I always say I really never write about my real life, but then I always find examples where, well, yeah, I guess I did write about my real life because of that um, little encounter with the mothers of multiples. Um, you know, I know I'm just supposed to talk, and uh, but I really like to talk to your questions. Um, so I have my candy, um, and you all know that. Unless, do you want me to talk first about you know how I started writing, or because I always think everybody knows that. You you do? Okay. All right. So I consider myself really lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do from um, the age of. Five. Uh, I have a December birthday, so I started kindergarten at four. Um, so when I was five, I was in first grade, and that's when we learned how to read um, with the Dick and Jane books. And I don't know if any of you remember those, but um, they really weren't the most compelling pieces <laughs> of literature. You know, it was see, puff, jump, and see, spot, run. And yet, to read those words, I thought, Wow, I do see puff jump and I do see spot run and I want to create that kind of magic too. Um, so right then and there I thought, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. Um, I did have a conflicting uh, career choice also in first grade. For a couple weeks I thought I was going to be a professional baton twirler. Um, and, wow, that's like an old-fashioned phone. Wow. Um, and I, I didn't even have a baton, but I really liked those boots. Um, so I always wrote, um, I had a, the kind of sixth grade teacher you wish every kid had for every grade. Mr. Spaeth was a real renaissance man. He would take us out for rough and tumble Winter Olympic sports games in the winter, and we'd come up tromping snow off our boots, and he'd sit at the piano, and. Back then, most you know, grade school classrooms had pianos and teachers who knew what to do with them. And so we would have a hootenanny every day. He read aloud to us every day. And at that time, in Minneapolis, there was a radio program called Let's Write. And teachers would send student work uh, to this radio program. And twice, they broadcast my poems over, the, over our crackly um, loudspeaker and I was just so thrilled and so Norwegian that I had to listen like this, you know. <laughs> um, but um, I, I do not have a good memory, but for some reason I remember one of those poems that I wrote. So I shall recite it to you right now. It, it was about winter. I love the feeling of icy snow, the tingling coldness, the peppermint glow. The skies are dull with a hint of blue, then down come the snowflakes crisp and new. They drift and float and come a-dancing. I almost hear Rudolph's swift legs a-prancing, but the feel of the flakes are the best of all. Touch me, touch me, they seem to call. Thank you. Um, <laughs> And that's why I didn't go into poetry. Um, anytime you have to add, you know, preface a word with uh, a prancing, a dancing, you know, you know you're no Mary Oliver. Uh, so I was uh, always thrilled in, 
by Mr. Spaeth's belief in me. And we used to have little autograph books, which on the last day of school, our friends and teachers would sign before we got on the covered wagons to go back home. <laughs> um, but Mr. Spaeth, in my book, wrote, best of luck for a fine literary career. And I thought, oh, a fine literary, do you you know, it just meant so much to me that this revered teacher had belief in me, and I never forgot those words. And I, in fact, acknowledged him in my second book, but I couldn't remember his first name, you know, because your assumption when you're a kid is they don't have first names, teacher, you know. So, and my mother thought it was Richard, but she wasn't sure, so I just decided to acknowledge him the way I addressed him as Mr. Spade. So the Star Tribune had done a story about that book, and they you know, asked me all about the um, acknowledgments, so I told them about Mr. Spaeth, and they looked him up for me. And it didn't require a lot of detective work. Uh, he was in Bloomington, but uh, <laughs> we got together all those years later at the Baker Square on Old Shakopee Road. Um, and now I was an adult, so he introduces me to his wife, whose name happens to be Mary. We're all on first name basis now. And, and then I learned that his first name is Joseph. So um, I had pie and coffee with Mary and Joseph. And, <laughs> and then I kid you not, you know, I always think real life trumps fiction. I can barely say that word. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, the things that happen in real life, if you wrote about them, people would go, oh, that will never happen. But this is the truth. The busboy's name tag was Jesus. Jesus. Yes, it was. <laughs> that is a true story. Um, I love how the Chanhassen libraries always offer me a bottle of water that's been doctored with a little gin. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I continue to write, um, but I also really liked to act. Um, so I thought, why not spend my 20s in Hollywood being a movie star? That sounded fun. And doesn't that sound fun? And How'd that go? <laughs> it went fine, thank you. No, I, I decided Meryl Streep was doing a wonderful job with our career, and I let her have it. Um, but I did a lot of comedy there, a lot of stand-up comedy, and a lot of improvisation, and it was so much fun. We lived in an old complex on Hollywood Boulevard with a, a Olympic-sized swimming pool designed by Douglas Fairbanks with old tenants who'd walk around, you know, in frayed straw hats, saying things like, I was Veronica Lake stand-in. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I just, I loved it. It was so much fun. Um, but in acting, if people said no to me, and this really is the secret, like anything in life, uh, you don't listen when people say no, but I always did, you know, and I'd back out of the audit. Oh, thank you. Can I get you coffee? You know, I just, I was too acquiescent. So um, I never succeeded the way uh, Meryl did. And I'm kind of glad because, you know, my career would be over by now because there's, Hollywood is so cruel, you know. I'd probably get hired as, you know, Sean Connery's grandma. <laughs> or, you know, uh, so glad some men are in this audience, <laughs> just for me to vent to. No, I'm so glad men are here, because I do write for men, too. I write for people. Um, so anyway, we, uh, when, when you live in Hollywood, um, it's, you know, and don't make money in your acting, you have to uh, temp or waitress. So I did a lot of waitressing. I really liked to waitress. Did a lot of temping. Um, but to temp in Hollywood is really fun. You get sent to record companies, movie companies. And once my temp agent called me and she said, uh, we're sending you to the Playboy Mansion. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, 
because I'm a feminist. I wasn't going to go to the Playboy Mansion. She assured me it was strictly clerical. So I thought I would go like Margaret Mead, exploring the secret culture. Um, and it was the only job my husband ever begged to drive me to. And we drove up, you know, to Holmby Hills in this big estate with, you know, big tall iron gate and fence. And, and you, I was instructed to talk into a rock. Um, so, hi, this is uh, Laura Larvark, and, and the gates swing open. Um, so I worked in Hugh Hefner's video room on the third floor, just cataloging the many videotapes Hugh Hefner would watch. And I'm talking about uh, if, you know, Miss April cut a ribbon at Ralph's supermarket, I would have to type, Miss April cuts ribbon at Ralph's supermarket. <laughs> And then it got to be a really fun job. I got to uh, watch old movies, um, not porn, you know, <laughs> like good old movies, and then write synopses about it. So it was really fun. Um, they treated you really well, I think, so you would forget where you were. Um, a butler would come up at 3 o'clock with a silver tea service and cookies. Um, We'd get there in the morning, and the chefs would ask us if we wanted breakfast. Every lunch, we got leftovers from the party buffet that was held the night before. Um, so it really was fun. Um, twice, I had to deliver um, cassette tapes. And this was you know, the, VA, the big, what do you call those? VHS. Thank you. Um, into his bedroom. I know. And, uh, <laughs> But they assured me I, it was empty, the bedroom. Uh, but I just scrambled in there and I you know, plopped the tapes down. He has a round bed with a faux fur covering and a mirror on the ceiling. I couldn't figure that one out. Uh, and I'd race out and you know, wash my hands. Um, and around that time, um, I had a dream that I was Gorbachev's temp secretary. Um, and in my dream, the United States had sent a nuclear weapon to Russia. Russia had until high noon to respond. I was just a temp. I was also, you know, Minnesotan, um, you know, Norwegian Lutheran bred. You know, I didn't know how to counsel him. And, um, <laughs> So I woke up and I was so scared. And I stood over, by this time we had had our first daughter, I stood over the crib of my little baby thinking, what kind of world have we brought you into? And that dream didn't, um, well, I should say that I don't live by my you know, nocturnal dreams or use them as guidance. If I did, I'd you know, be institutionalized. But <laughs> that dream really was literally um, what started the first step of what turned into, I'm sure, millions, because we joined a thousand people um, in the great peace march for global nuclear disarmament. And we left Los Angeles, and it took us nine months, but we walked to Washington, D.C. And we had a, a school bus, a daycare bus, a post office, food trucks, porta potties, all the funding fell out. Um, Two weeks into the march, we were stuck in um, beautiful Barstow, California. You've been there, so you know I use beautiful facetiously. And, and then half the marchers left, but the rest of us reorganized, and it really became a kind of a grassroots march where farmers would come out with truckloads of produce. Um, you had to work two days within the camp, so the, on those days, my husband and I would work on the daycare bus. Um, so one of our, our daughter was 14 months when we started and uh, 23 months when we ended. Um, and people have asked me, you know, since, why would you do that? And I just have to say, well, there has been no nuclear war, so you're all welcome. <laughs> um, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, so then when we got back from the march, you know, I realized that Meryl was still doing a really good job with <laughs> what should have been my career. Although she, I will say Meryl's about 20 years older than I. <laughs> um, 
So we decided to move back to LA, I mean to Minneapolis. And because I thought, you know, there are just as many acting opportunities here as there are in LA, and um, they're just not in movies or TV. But um, so we packed up our old Chevy, and um, three days before we were ready to leave, Patty Jane and her sister came into my head. And when I was in LA, I would write all the time, but I would write short fiction or monologues for people to do um, on stage or little one-act plays. But I never thought I had the maturity uh, or the scope to write a novel. I still don't know if I have the maturity, but. Um, <laughs> so when these two women, Patty Jane and Harriet, came into my head, I thought, well, who are you? And they brought this title, Patty Jane's House of Curl, and I thought, well, Whoever you are, I think whatever this is has something to do with a, a beauty salon um, or a obscure sports facility in North Dakota. Um, so I, I started writing. Um, I got a job. I got hired at Dudley Riggs, so I would do you know a show and then come home and be all wired and you know write late into the night. And I, I wrote Patty Jane's House of Curl all by hand. Um, and then I typed it on a very loud, clackety brother typewriter. And I remember typing up the final version, and it was a rainy May night, a little bit like this, except later. And it was about 2 in the morning, and clack, clack, clackety, clack. And I was writing this scene where a character is dying. And clack, clack, clack. my hands were all wet. And I thought, oh, we have a leak in the ceiling. And then I realized I was crying. And, dropping tears on my hands, and Bates, you are so aware of everything. Oh. So I thought, that's so good. If I'm crying, maybe a reader will cry. And that's really how I think I write as a reader. If I'm engaged in the scene, I hope somebody else is going to be engaged. If I'm bored, I know that you're going to be, honey, get the wine. Um, so. I did everything by the book that I found at my local library. It's called The Writer's Market. Now you can find everything online. But in The Writer's Market, it told me how to write a query letter. It gave me all these agents' addresses. So I did everything that book said, um, collected dozens and dozens of, no, no, uh-uh, sorry, no, 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 no. And finally, I got an agent. Um, I remember she called me up um, the night after that Halloween snowstorm of 91. And we had our second daughter by then. And my husband and I were out with our older daughter. And you know the snow started to fall. And it was kind of fun. And then it kept falling. And her friends started to peel off, you know, wussies. And um, <laughs> we're not quitters. We, you know, her costume had completely <laughs> practically melted, keep going. Um, we're candy fans. Um, so my agent called me the day after that um, when everyone was shoveling out. And she said, um, you know, I, I kind of like these uh, crazy women. I'd like to represent you. Um, it took 30 rejections. And finally, she called with the news. Um, I have good news and bad news. The good news is somebody wants to publish your book. Yes. The bad news is they don't give advances. I know. And this was the year that um, Horse Whisperer had been sold for $2 million. Everybody seemed to know that. You know, I couldn't go to my local grocery store without the clerk saying, yeah, your mother said you sold your first book. What, how big is your advance? You know. <laughs> Um, but then when you, if you don't get an advance, you don't have to pay it off with subsequent sales. So I started getting really fun phone calls. Um, publishers that had said no to it were now bidding to publish it in softcover after the hardcover came out. Um, you know, I was getting calls, Germany is buying your book, Spain. So it was really, really fun. Um, and I always tell people that the writing, you know, acting is a lot of fun. And I still like to do it. But if I had to choose one, it would be the writing. Um, and that's the field that I decided I'm not going to let somebody's no be my final answer. Um, but I was so relieved at that yes. I mean, 
it took a long time. Hey, you know what? Um, let's just have a little uh, musical interlude before we go to questions. Um, there's a lot of campfires in this book because um, it's up north. Um, and I, and I, on, at my launch, I played a couple, um, but then there seemed to be a mass exit. So, um, <laughs> no. so I just thought I've, I've played songs that not everybody knew the, the, the lyrics to. So how about um, You Are My Sunshine? Everybody knows that. That's a good campfire song, right? Right? Okay. You are my sunshine. I discovered all these campfire songs, they always have a chipper, cheerful verse, and then they go like into deep melancholia. Uh, does anyone know the second verse? The Don't applaud. <laughs> wow, I felt like I had a trip to the island there. Um, so let's just let's just talk with your questions. And as you know, I always give candy. Um, and I have done the, the my very first book when Patty Jane was published. I had my first reading at Odegaard's in Mini, in St. Paul, and knowing. You know, having gone to a lot of readings as a reader, I knew that whenever the writer asked for questions, there would always be a long, shy pause. So I thought, I gotta, I gotta cut through that pause. So I made brownies. <laughs> and I do make pretty good brownies, but I was running all over, you know, giving the crumbs all over. So I thought, I gotta get a little more portable. So um, I got Hershey's Kisses. Um, and I have to tell you a story about these. Years ago, because I like candy, and I was eating a Hershey's Kiss, and I said to my husband, you know what? They should make Hershey's hugs, like white chocolate in gold wrapping. He said, that's a good idea. You should write to Hershey's. So I wrote Hershey's a letter, and you learn in um, you know, trying to freelance write that if you send something to yourself you know, through the post office and don't open it, those uh, contents in that unopened envelope will serve as a copyright. So I mailed the same letter to myself. A couple years later, I'm at Cub Foods, and I see Hershey's Hogs, and I think they stole my idea. And I ran home to get the letter. Yes, Bates, I could not find the letter. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. And. I looked all over. I didn't have the letter. Um, my husband talked to a lawyer who said, well, you know, they really own the rights to whatever permutation they want to do with a Hershey's Kiss. But I still think that some guy in the mailroom got that letter. And <laughs> now he's like CEO of Worldwide Chocolate. Um, and then I want to tell you another story about these. Um, one of my very first events was at a Sons of Norway in a Minneapolis suburb, Lakeville. And um, <laughs> they had me, they had a podium like this right in the center of the room and a, a folding chair right next to it. And they told me to sit there while the president conducted the meeting. So the meeting was going on and on. And then he was saying, and about the picnic, no more bars. No more bars. Last picnic we had 17 pans of bars and no entrees. 
you know, so I'm sitting there thinking, why did they, why did, why did they make me come to this? And, but then things started to get lively. They honored uh, their fiddler who fiddled at all their functions. And so they, the fiddler came up and he was 92 years old. And they presented him with a little teeny tiny rose malt box, which he held in his fiddler hand. And he looks at it and he says, oh, well, this is really going to come in handy. <laughs> because, you know, I've been telling people that I'll be moving in May, and I sure could use another trunk. And so then I remembered, yes, these are my people. It just takes a while. And um, so then I talked, and then I told people, OK, let's have some questions. And you know, if you, if you want a piece of candy, just raise your hand. And so a guy way in the back raised his hand, and I threw it at him, and he caught it, and he just sat there staring at me. And I, <laughs> I said, well, do you have a question? And he said, yeah, well, you already answered it. It was can I have a piece of candy? <laughs> and then they, they offered lunch to me. And by now, it's about 10.30 at night. But I thought, yeah, I'll stay for lunch. And they had lefsa. But this was the shock, because you know normal people eat it with butter and brown sugar. They had a big vat of hot dogs that you were supposed to you know, put in your lefsa. I, I couldn't believe it. I called immigration the next day. <laughs> I had to shut them down. Um, so if you have it, these are nice high ceilings. I did speak at a country club. Don't go. Why? <laughs> um, and they, they had a very low ceilinged um, facility. and. It was in Chippewa Falls, and I had stopped at a local grocery store to get my Hershey's Kisses, and they didn't have them. Oh. Wisconsin. And uh, <laughs> so I got Rolos, and I don't think they're as aerodynamically correct. <laughs> so a woman way in the back, and I have a pretty good aim. And so I flung it at her, only to see her go, oh. <laughs> and I raced over to her, and her husband was laughing. He said, She's a real drama queen. Um, but she had a mark, you know. Um, but I'll try to be, uh, you know, look, I can get a good arc here. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Lorna Landvik and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about the cover of Landvik's latest book, Once in a Blue Moon. I love the cover. Um, it, and it has a wonderful texture, too. It just, I just love it. Um, <laughs> And I guess it's by a woman. I emailed her how happy I was with it. Because um, throughout my career, I have had some kind of clunker covers. Because um, nowadays, to cost cut, they'll use like clip art. They'll use already in the system images. Uh, my book, Oh My Stars, the paperback has a, a profile of a, of a woman that's kind of in dusky tones. And then they have like a guitar uh, neck on the bottom. But that photograph in various incantations, black and white color, has been used on five different books. And yeah, and, and my book Tall Pine Polka has a picture of a diner. Um, and that picture has been used for a couple of books. So to get original art was just great. And I. Don't you love that cover? I just I love it. You can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge the cover, you know. And I, I love that cover. I'm so happy with it. To me, I look at it, and it just says, buy me. <laughs> this next question is about the age of Landvik's children and if they have any interest in writing. My daughters are 32 and 20 almost 26. And yes, they, I don't, my older daughter 
is like my mother. My mother had the gift of speed reading. You know, she could just, she read a book a night. And I don't have that. I even took a, an online thing, and I was like, <laughs> you know, and it just gave me a headache. Do you remember the old Evelyn Wood? Um, so she's a voracious reader, and I think she's a really good writer. She's written a lot of nonfiction. Um, so far, hasn't compiled enough, you know, like into a book or anything, but it's always time. And my younger daughter, I um, was gonna put up for adoption. <laughs> no. no, but she didn't. She didn't seem to have that book passion. I mean, she would read, you know, Harry. We've read all the Harry Potter books together, and she'd read, you know, um, like Twilight and those books. Um, so when she went away for school um, at the reformatory, uh, <laughs> no, uh, I would email her every day when she was uh, at college. I'm not a hovering parent. I just like to drop a line. And she would write back and they were so funny and it, you know, really detailed and so I, um, she as yet hasn't expressed an interest in writing a lot, but you never know. This question asker inquires about the inspiration behind the character of Avil in Patty Jane's House of Curls. Thank you for reminding me of these characters. Avil was uh, in the first book, Patty Jane's House of Curl, um, and he was uh, a grain heir um, whose family had made a lot of money making um, that fake grain coffee, you know. Um, and he and Harriet fall in love, but Abel meets an early demise. I know I didn't I didn't mean to do that, <laughs> and that's really the fun of writing for me because I had no idea what was gonna to happen to Avil till it happened. And I thought, no. Uh, and then I took some sedatives. But, um, <laughs> so Avil, I can't say that any characters I write about are inspired by real people. Um, when I finished Patty Jane's House of Curl, I had raced over to my mother's house when I was sent the hot off the press copy. They sent me two. And, I gave the book to my mom saying, Mom, pa Patty Jane really has a mouth on her, but it's not me. Because, um, you know, she was my mother and she never swore. Um, although she did, but her swearing was whenever you heard her say, Oh my stars, he did what? You know, listening to a phone call about one of my brothers. But um, when I, after she read the book, she called me up. And because she was my mother, I got a rave review, and she was a big reader, so she could handle Patty Jane's mouth. Um, but I said, Mom, I didn't intend to do this, but now that I think of it, I own the Norwegian mother-in-law kind of reminds me of you. And she said, uh, I don't see it. So, <laughs> um, so I don't know where Abel came from, and I don't know where most of the people come from. Best to Laugh, the book that I wrote before this, is the only autobiographical book I've written. And that was, I just wanted to pay homage to my time in Hollywood doing um, stand-up comedy and living on Hollywood Boulevard. Although the main character, much to my surprise, who shares similar desires as I do, um, has a father who's half Norwegian, so I think, well, uh, duh. But then, like, half Finnish, and I think, how am I gonna write about a Finn? Um, <laughs> But then her mother turns out to be a Korean War Bride. And I thought, oh, come on. I don't know a thing about Korean War Brides. And this character just let me know that that was my problem. So um, I got some books out on the Korean War and read about Korean War camps. And, um... This audience member asks about Landvik's motivation to write about special needs children in her book, Welcome to the Great Mysterious. Um, and again, I, when the two main characters came into my head, um, Geneva Jordan was a, a Broadway diva, and I thought, oh, I can write about her. And then her nephew, who was a 13-year-old boy with Down syndrome, came into my head, and I thought, no, I, I don't know anything about Down syndrome. And again, his response was, not my fault. 
Um, so I read some books about Down syndrome, and then I just decided to give him the freedom that I give my other characters, and let him kind of tell me his story. So he would tell me weird things, like he was very particular about his food and had to have certain foods on certain days. Um, and I've done a couple of events um, for ARC and um, people, parents of Down syndrome children um, have come up to me and introduced themselves as such. And I always just get a little nervous thinking they're going to tell me what I did wrong, but so far I've only, they, they'll say things like, oh, he's just like my daughter, or just like my son. This question is about Landvik's diverse writing style and how she's able to get away without sticking to a consistent theme or brand. Uh, I don't know. I never, I love when readers tell me what my themes are, because I never know. You know, I just love people. Um, my curiosity about people, what makes all of us tick, is endless. And I know all of us have a story. Um, and all of us probably have stories that would raise eyebrows or incite crying or laughing or, you know. Um, so, you know, maybe I should um, sort of write, like, that's what my publisher used to tell me. They said, you, you write a, or, again, they were authority figures, so they have this voice. You write a different book every time. And I took that as a compliment. Uh, yeah, because I don't want, you know, people to think, oh, boy, oh. You know there'll usually be a Norwegian in there, and you know there'll be some candy, but I just, I like to write about <laughs> life. Um, so I'm gonna take that as a compliment, which surely you meant, right? Another audience member asked Lorna Landvik if any of her books will be adapted into films. Chan Hassan's sort of a wealthy suburb. I would think you have some, um, <laughs> Movie connections, please. Uh, I got a weird call a long time ago from um, either the Hallmark Channel or Lifetime for a mini series, but it never happened. Um, Patty Jane's House of Curl was optioned for years. It was getting really exciting. I mean, they, Ashley Judd called me up one night. Um, I thought. It was one of my friends, and I, I picked it up, and hi, Ash. And um, I do have to tell this story, because this is for the men in the audience. Um, when Ashley Judd called me up, um, and we had, she wanted to play the character of Harriet, which is a great part, because you get to be drunk, and you, know, you have a whole gamut of emotions. And near the end of the conversation, she said, well, I have to tell you, I gave your book to a friend of mine recovering from heart surgery in the hospital, and he loved it. And I thought, yes, uh, he, you know, a male pronoun, yes, because I love, you know, when men read my books. And she said, yeah, he, he bought 10 copies for his friends and relatives. And then she said, uh, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I, you know, pictured Arnold in a hospital gown, you know, oh, that pathogens. House of Carl is so sad. Um, so I always think if Arnold can read a book like, you know, with a title like Patty Jane's House of Curl, then come on, men. Um, so I would love them to be made into movies because, uh, and I would love to write a screenplay that got produced because then you get in the writer's guild because, you know, book writers don't have a union. Uh, screenwriters do and you, they have really good dental insurance. <laughs> this question asker, notes that she has a daughter graduating from college in a few weeks who wants to pursue a career in writing. What advice would Lorna Landvik give to an aspiring writer? You know, my parents encouraged me. They never made me think that, well, you can't do that. Um, when I lived out in Hollywood, my mother was the, the family letter writer. Um, we wrote to each other weekly, you know, and if we didn't get a letter, that meant a phone call. Where's my letter? I mailed it. Okay, goodbye. Um, <laughs> but occasionally my dad would, you know, put in a, a word or two. And I remember I was up for this part that it didn't happen, but he just wrote, K sera, sera, you know, at least you're trying. And 
So, um, you know, if she, you don't want her to mooch off you, you know, um, but you, you know, parents can provide havens that the kids can, um, you know, support with their own money and, um, but I, you know, the world is just too eager to say you can't do that. Do you know what the odds are? Don't, what are you, stupid? So why not have the people who love her the most think if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. But it's always good, you know, I could always type, I could always get a job. And I would encourage her to, you know, get out there and work too because everything influences you and inspires you. And, and I think waitressing is a really good job for a writer because um, the people you meet run the gamut. Um, <laughs> and, um, but yeah, and she might change her mind or she might, this might be, you know, her true path and how will you feel when she's, you know, accepting the Pulitzer Prize and you were always, I didn't think it was going to happen. No, you want to be there in the front row. This audience member wonders what Landvik's most difficult book was to write. You know, my, my mother died um, in 2004. My dad had died when I was only 27, but they were always very, very supportive. And my mother um, would always say, oh, I can't pick a favorite of your books. Oh, maybe I can. Um, and then she would say, um, um, welcome to the Great Mysterious. She said, hey, there's just something about that book. Um, but uh, let's see, the most difficult, wow, that's a good question. You know, they're all, when you start out, and this will also be good to tell your daughter. When I was writing Patty, maybe Patty Jane's House of Curl was the most difficult just because it was the first one. And I would hear from everybody, do you know what the odds are of publishing a book or, you know, do you think you'll always be waitressing till retirement? And um, so I just always pictured myself as holding this little flame of confidence. And I knew it was everybody else's job to try to blow it out, but my job was just to guard it and protect it. So maybe that, well, I can't say that I, well, I know, I finally have the answer. I would say the book I'm writing now is the hardest. Um, because I've, almost, I've been saying for quite a while, I only have about 30 pages to go, and then um, they surprise me and pull the rug out from under my feet, and then I have to go back. Um, so I will say that one. And the next time I'm here, I hope I'm talking about that book. The last question of the night comes from an audience member asking about Landvik's writing process. Well, I get up, I check in with my parole officer. Um, <laughs> no, I wish I had a routine. I don't. I admire writers who have their coffee made the night before and set on a timer to be bubbling and brewing at 5.30, and then they get to it. I have to ease into the day. You know, I like to read the paper. We get two papers. I have to do the crossword puzzles. They get harder as the week goes on. Um, we used to have a fabulous dog, and we're gonna get a replacement. We just haven't been able to yet. And I would have to take him to the river for a nice long walk. Um, and so I'd usually get to writing in the afternoon. Um, sometimes I will write, like I plan on um, going home and doing some work. That's the plan. Because um, I already TiVo'd few, uh, feud, and I, I watched that, so I don't have to catch up on that. Um, and so every day I try to write a little. A little might mean two or three hours, a little might be 20 minutes, a little might be some deep thinking as I take a long walk. Um, but once I did this event, and I was next to Nora Roberts, you know, who's written like 9,000 books, and she had a big bottle of Coke and um, some Cheetos. <laughs> and I thought, wow, maybe that should be my fuel. You know, because um, she is so prolific. But um, 
I always want to crack the whip a little harder, but then I always think, ow, ow. Um, <laughs> you know, because you want to live your life too, but um, a, a day is always better in which I, a day that I, in which I've written, correct my English please, is, <laughs> is always better. Thank you so much for coming tonight. I so appreciate it. I'll be signing books. I prefer that they're mine. Um, <laughs> um, and thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That wraps up our Carver County Library Chan Hassan event with Lorna Landvik. Make sure to catch our last club book event of the season with Yaa Jesse at St. Paul Public Library, Merriam Park on Thursday, May 11th. Ghanaian American novelist Yaa Jesse is the author behind Homegoing, one of the breakout hits of 2016. This sweeping transcontinental family saga follows the descendants of two sisters torn apart by the African slave trade. It was released in paperback in April. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.